0: Hello and welcome to Voice Club, this is a conversation with Jordan Hall. It's an interesting conversation, it's difficult to sum it up. It's explorative in nature and I initially titled it A Strange Conversation with Jordan Hall until it came to me this morning that a better title might be In the Wake of Mystery. That seems to be what we're in. So. For a growing number of futurists, culture analysts and seekers, Jordan Hall has become a keynote of signal in a world of increasing noise. Co-founder of Neurohacker Collective, futurist, sorcerer, angel investor, tech entrepreneur. These are just some of the hats you'll find on his various bios. Hats are interesting, but they are hats. It's the manner Jordan shows up to dialogue in combination with the relevance of his thought that is of key interest to many. I hope that for many who track the ongoing development of the cluster of memes and names associated with Game B and the integrous transformation of self and society, that this offers a unique and interesting window into some speculative metaphysics characteristic of the transformation in which we participate. No answers here, certainly not from me. Hopefully some relevant questions in transformation, though. For those unfamiliar with Jordan Hall and his thinking, I recommend listening to his appearance on The Jim Rutt Show in particular, and also the trialogue on Rebel Wisdom, where he's joined by Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jamie Wheel. There are a few sizable pauses in this podcast which I've left in, so it may not be your internet disconnecting, but it might, so enjoy that thought invading your mind. Okay, To support this project, to produce more conversations like this, and to build a sense-making community in Melbourne and share the development thereof with the online world, you can go to patreon.com slash voiceclub. Thanks very much to Jordan for this conversation, and I hope you enjoy this. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening as a podcast, remember to subscribe and hit the bell to track upcoming releases. Much love. Here we go.
1: Jordan, hi, hello. How are you? Good. You're coming in. You're uh, fuzzy. Am I fuzzy?
0: Uh, you're you're a bit fuzzy. Let's see how it. Let's see how it takes care of itself.
1: I'm actually entirely a computer deepfake simulation. So, we can just send you the file afterwards, and it'll be perfect.
0: Well, you've got one of those voices that I could see being particularly susceptible to that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> How are you anyway I mean look this is a bit of a strange thing to be doing in in some sense how do you feel logging on and meeting me and sort of I have a lot of respect for people that do that because there's a sense in which it's stepping into the unknown in quite a a real sense
1: for me it's actually always been um well I can't say always actually to be perfectly frank for the the better part of my life I actually didn't spend much time talking with other people in general certainly not talking with other people uh Uh, telephonically but something along the lines of um improvisation Mm -hmm. is more it's pretty natural for me i don't don't tend to plan (laughs) what it is that i'm about to do uh in the dialogical sense i mean i I have plans in life i'm planning on going out to eat for example but uh i'm more of a theater performer than i am a uh film performer yeah and so I'm, i'm actually quite happy to be put into a context where the, the conversation actually provokes possibility.
0: Yeah, I feel I no that.
1: No interest whatsoever in being a message. So as a consequence, it's quite nice to just have a conversation. And if somebody wants to record it and share it with other people, I suppose that's okay.
0: Yeah, I feel very similar. I feel actually quite uncomfortable about saying many things to people at all. It's becoming more and more that way, apart from if it's in dialogue with them.
1: So yeah, I think I know what you're
0: saying. So when I load up Skype, it starts recording automatically. Now we don't have to use anything that just occurred there. Usually I would say, okay, now everything from this point will take us the recording. So the way I'm looking at this is that the only difference between me wanting to talk to you and have a conversation offline versus online is the simple fact that <laughs> the mechanism for doing so involves an audience. So in that sense, yeah, I'm, I'm good to go, but then there's also going to have to do that. This kind of weird abstract thing where all of a sudden, here we go, we move into that different space. So any time from when you or, would like,
1: or we, can simply, we can simply begin where we begin. And this part right now that we're having is ha- being had uh, out out loud in front of other people. Who are watching right now sure i'm uh, perfectly
0: happy for that but i usually there's only one uh, one question i should ask which is how long do i have you for like what are the considerations over your time here
1: uh 4 30 my time so about an hour about an hour let me just get my from my perspective this is your your call so whatever framework or approach you feel most comfortable with
0: yeah sure well we'll see i planned in some sense to ask you to begin with, why are you here and what are you doing this for? And you've already given a partial answer that the intrigue in dialogue and not being disposed just to speak in that transmission-based way from speaker to audience, that's not what compels you. You're looking to engage in a, some sort of collaboration fundamentally to express what's authentic and what comes up. So perhaps the next question is, what are your priorities in life? Hmm.
1: Well, I think what I, what I might do to be able to respond to that is actually just think about where do I actually spend my time. is sure. a nice concrete way of, of uh, assessing that. So I spend uh, quite the majority of my time um, as a parent. So I would say that my primary priority is to be a, a, a good parent, um, Particularly, if, So if you add the amount of time that I spend in relationship with my kids to the amount of time that I spend either preparing to be in relationship or dialoguing with other people about that, uh, then that's probably even the majority of my waking hours are spent in that context. I spend a meaningful amount of time, <laughs> it's a funny thing to say, but maybe contemplating things. Um, and it seems that the, the things that I'm contemplating are things that have they have come up. I've, I've learned over the past, oh, I guess, 48 years, but over the past 10 years or so in particular, I don't know, a certain approach to how I allow my attention to be directed. Even the fact that we're on this call is an example of that. Uh, so I... You may say that I follow my gut. That's kind of a nice, simple way of putting it. It's not as simple as that, but there's a, a, a way, and that brings me into contemplation. And I, I do, I think, have a, a preference for clear and deep thinking, and so when I encounter something that seems worth attending to at all, I often find myself contemplating it rather deeply, um, and so I spend a lot of my time doing that. There's more, if I can go on. Obviously, I have a a large amount of hours in my life, but uh, those seem like a good place to start. Yeah.
0: Contemplation, deep thinking, following the gut. These three things together, I think, lead us in an interesting direction. The kind of thinking that interests me the most, although, of course, I am interested in tight analytic thinking and doing my best to be clear. But it's also, what are you thinking about? And just what the fuck Mm -hmm. are you doing? And just how are you discerning between the qualitative information that you receive in your life? How are you moving towards the better and not the worse? How are you moving towards a place of self-transcendence rather than an ever-closing spiral of delusion? There's a sense in which this gut that perhaps you reference here is this um, more affective, perhaps, and okay, here I'm going to just chuck a term that's going to introduce a whole another dimension to this, perhaps a somewhat more mystical capacity. Because what are we following? We're following feelings in the body. We're following emotional orientation. I mean, ultimately where I'd quite like to get to just to put cards out on the table, which an interest of mine and something I sense you share as well is this relationship, this a, a sort of mystical contemplation. But perhaps to make the question a bit more succinct, a bit more clear, what are the kinds of thinking that you engage in that you find most meaningful?
1: Well, exactly as you say, um, it's an experience that involves allowing a particular mystery, I suppose, to percolate and to... embody itself in I suppose the capacity to be expressed so that's the one that I find the most meaningful
0: you have a blend of expression that I respect a lot which is clarity plus that nod to the unknown in a more poetic way how it comes across to me If you're interested when I read, for example, your medium articles, the method of conveying comes across as quite analytical, but there is a sense in which, well, I mean, quite explicitly you are tenderly expressing out, embodying out a connection to the realization of a story in which you're not quite sure the role you're actually playing. And I think there's something profoundly true about that. However, it's in our expressing it and coming into relationships with each other that we encounter what's at least somewhat required or somewhat able to help aid our understanding in just what it is we're doing. But it's this time period thing is very, very challenging. Over how long should we be taking in how long is the the frame of reference to sort of judge just what role we're playing in some situation here. (laughs) And I find that, that, that problem is, um, is a really devilish one. There's a few places I'd sort of like to take this and many other places I'd like to go and that I don't know where they are and one and an hour is not very long. And so I actually would quite like to ask you back to the question of priorities. What would you like to achieve in dialogue with people online right now? You've been speaking to John Viveki. You've had a number of appearances with rebel wisdom. You seem to be from someone who's paid attention to this a lot. And from someone who's tracking many of the same memes and looking to embody them in the world, to some extent, to bring people together, to involve them in conversation, to pay attention to the feeling along with the words and perhaps the feeling more importantly than the words, to attempt to experiment with collective sense-making, to try and lead in some sense or provide the toolkit, do a little bit of orchestration for something that fundamentally is not yours to orchestrate. That's an interesting thing. So there's seeding something, but then there's also always, hang on, I'm not interested in telling anybody a message that they're not interested to participate in that realization with. So it becomes actually quite difficult to speak about what it is you're doing. So that's why the importance is to step in and and dialogue and see what comes up. Could you talk a little bit to the lay of the land you see at a more systemic level in society Mm -hmm. at the moment, how the individual finds himself in that and what you believe would be a success for you if you can move the needle towards a direction of a better relationship between an individual and a sustainable world?
1: Ah, that's a lot. Let's see. Well, the thing that's coming up most clearly right now is a story that I've I've felt very close to for some time. And it has to do with the notion, both that we're in a moment of real change, capital R, capital C. (laughs) Um, And also that this moment of real change is a moment that is a part of a longer arc there's some, some kind of continuity to the change as well, that we're connected to something. Or our, there's a way for us to have some relationship with the change that is not entirely incomprehensible. And so this is where, for example, a lot of the analytic work shows up. Is actually, is there anything that we can say? Anything that we can actually make available to that part of our mind and to our being that can be helpful and useful as we're endeavored to go through this? And for that matter, just communicating to the people for whom that particular style of communication is their preference. And the, my sense, my deep sense, my considered sense is that the, the quality, the magnitude and the quality of the change is truly profound in a way that is very difficult, I think, for people to um, conceive of because it is in fact that, that true. I actually remember being at a the very first time I ever went to a place called the Aspen Institute. And there was a gentleman there who had been the CEO of a pretty significant company. And for some reason, I don't really know the backstory, had been working on a uh, presentation that he gave at this conference. And in the presentation, he said, our, our, it is our considered judgment, it is our assessment for the people who are gathered here, many of whom are actually rather important people, capital I, capital B, um, that the... The information revolution, whatever you want to call that, will be on the order of magnitude of at least 10 times as impactful as the industrial revolution. Okay? So this was important people, and this was serious people, articulating this notion and intended to be taken seriously in a venue where that sort of thing happened. But then I just thought for myself, just sitting there in the room, just thinking, well, okay, well, what, would that, what does that actually imply? Let's just take a look back at what the Industrial Revolution did across all the different domains of human experience in terms of religion, in terms of how we lived, who we lived with, how we lived our lives, what we thought of as being life, um, our concepts, our notions, our values, our aesthetics. And of course, the, the answer is it was tremendously significant. Incomprehensible in, in many deep senses, like the people before and after um, were as different as each other as the people before and after the agricultural revolution. Uh, and the proposition that you might have an event 10 times as significant that would happen over a frame frame, a third, a sixth as much time, um, what I noticed was that it was not taken seriously at all. It was not actually even conceptualized. And I was, got curious about that. This is quite a while ago. Maybe Gosh, twenty years ago now. Um, so I think a part of it is just a natural characteristic on my on my part to pursue continuity in reality, to try to hold as coherent and without, I suppose the word would be delusion or without um, completion, a relationship with reality is an in integrity. So if it turns out that it is proposed to be the case that an event 10 times the order of magnitude of the Industrial Revolution is happening and is likely to unfurl before the end of the century, then okay, well, let's just take seriously what that means and run it down all the way to the end. And um, it has seemed to be the case over the past 15 years or so, as I've been engaging in this kind of thing in earnest, that. Certain characteristics of my personality, which may or may not be pleasant in all cases, um, are of some service in this particular effort. Um, what is the phrase? I actually learned this from the whole Jordan Peterson universe. Uh, disagreeableness. I have a certain disagreeableness. You know, the, the fact that my particular perspective may not be shared by the people around me does not, I'm not going to say in the least, but pretty close, uh, sway. Sway. The perspective that I have, although I listen very closely, so it's it's not that I don't listen to other people's perspectives. It's just the fact that other people have the perspective, the fact that a group has the perspective, does not um, in and of itself cause me to believe that it is true. And then, I guess there's a, a just a strong sense of they're wanting to for people to actually be able to, as individuals, live good lives for for everyone ultimately. Um, I certainly have the highest degree of a uh, concern for people who are relatively younger, um, but to just be witness to the the fact that we are in a circumstance that we could just, without a, from my perspective, without a whole lot of effort, radically transform the quality of life and meaningfulness of life of literally everyone in a way that is not just enduring, but is in this very bizarre sense is the only possible way for us to actually continue to last as a species or at least as a civilization, um, I kind of can't look away from that fact.
0: Yeah, I think I understand.
1: And then I, I noticed that there's not a, the Einstein quote, the one that we're not going to uh, be able to to do the thing using the thing that God is here. Right. Uh, was a frankly hard one for me. I, I struggled quite mightily to figure out how to do the thing using the stuff that God is here. Uh, can we use excellence and technical capacity uh, to, 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 f- to figure this thing out? And it wasn't until, in fact, I was quite uh, confident through both theory and practice that this was not possible at all, that I began in earnestly entering into what we might call uh, exploring truly through liminality or being in relationship with mystery. And so in that context, there is a, an awareness of as you say, like a non-centrality, a I am just listening and endeavoring to most fully and clearly express and participate with that which seems to be the most true. And there is, to the extent that I can, nothing between me and that which seems to be true. And obviously, my capacity to do that is as limited as, as anyone else's. Um, but that's the the notion and, um, it is what it is. What role does
0: teleology play in your worldview?
1: Hmm. This is a very interesting question. I actually found myself contemplating it in the past three days, actually. I think somebody brought it to my attention. Was it you? No, no. I
0: mean, I think, I think the relationship between teleology and relevance realization is something that's quite on the pulse. It's Something I think uh-huh. about a lot for a while.
1: I'm, I'm uh, very, very excited by uh, the unfurling of old of John's uh, John's work, which is for, uh, entirely novel for me. Yeah, uh, I've I'm been unfamiliar with his work at all.
0: I've been studying, I suppose, to some degree, John's work for about three or four years. Oh, wow. Well, lucky you. Yeah, fortunate. Well, he had a um, conversation with Jordan Peterson that's been watched a couple hundred thousand times. I think that was in 2015. Yeah, that's how I found what he was up to. I'd been studying Jordan Peterson's work for a couple of years before then. And yeah, I mean, what has emerged at the Relevance University of Toronto?
1: All right? Relevance realization. There was something in you that gave you a sense that to study Jordan Peterson was a worthy endeavor. Yeah, And that as you came across John, it oriented you in the direction of John to apparently some meaningful extent. Teleology, I think, is a, uh, needs to be held carefully and actually teased apart. In some sense, in some frankly very simple sense, there's an obvious for sureness about certain kinds of teleology. In chaos theory or complexity theory, we would just call these basins of attraction. You know, so if I, if I put the marble at the top of the bowl Um, I can teleologically propose that it will end up at the bottom of the bowl. Ad infinitum, there's many, many, many things that have a characteristic where the future is very easy to predict given the current context. And of course, contrary-wise, there are other systems where the possibility of predicting the future is in fact zero. Okay. That's a a nice way of grasping reality. So there's sort of a meta question or a bigger question, which is, is is there something about the nature of the reality that we're currently in that is that the former case? Is it more like a basin of attraction? Is there something about it that we can use to make strong predictions or even certain predictions about the future states? Um, or is it more like the latter case? And um, by example, the the good folks of uh, the 19th century who teased apart thermodynamics made some very specific predictions about the heat death of the universe. But of course, the notion of telos is almost... Invoking a design intentionality that it's an arrow thrown, and about this i I do not know I simply do not
0: know So what moves the wheel, what gets things going and yeah I mean here perhaps you can correct me, but in my thinking about teleology, why Telos is? something that is difficult to shake off is i'm not sure how i'm not sure how there can be an experience of coherence without a multiplicity without the without a multiplicity of things being in relation with one another by virtue of their capacity to be in relationship ultimately with a higher unity and the idea that the realization of our nature whatever is given in our capacity to experience at all, like, that there can be experience, that, can it, that it can be in a meaningful qualitative relationship, that there can be coherence through change, through transformation, that there is coherence to emerge again after the dissolution, after death. All of that somehow has to be nested if that's not nested in some meaningful orientation, not necessarily to a blueprint of the final thing that has to be in some fixed sense of end state, the image in my mind is a is a harmonic dance around a continually moving center, but that nevertheless, all those pieces in the dance gain their coherence in part, not only by relationship to each other, but by relationship to the fact that there is a wandering, that there is a center which moves. So the whole process itself is what's real, but the reimagination of a point of coherence that binds and draws, I, I don't, I, I don't get, I don't get how there can be things that talk to each other that can be in meaningful relationship with each other. If there is not in some sense, a continuity, continuity, some sort of unity.
1: Wholeness to put it. In that
0: place. Yes, whole making. So my thoughts and the reason I find so much resonance with yourself and uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger and also Forrest Landry, who I was reading one of his essays on um, consciousness, actually, just before we began this um, conversation, I've just started, I just found his, his work through, um, well, first through the transition video that you put online which I actually got a small group of people together in a cinema to watch actually a few months ago and to discuss
1: it. Wow, I would, um, I would point your attention to a work of Forrest's called The Effective Choice. I get the feeling that that would probably be the one that would be the most relevant to you.
0: Well, in that video, he says love is that which enables choice. I can get in touch with that, I believe. How do you respond to that notion?
1: Well, that's actually a very big question because it requires that we first mutually grok love and mutually grok choice. Mutually what, sorry? uh, Grok, uh, a way of grasping and sharing something which is almost at the level of participating in consciousness together.
0: Sure, yep, with you.
1: My heavens, that is extraordinarily, that's a very large thing.
0: I can read something out that might help you if you like. Something you wrote. Something I wrote. Something you wrote. That's always fun. Yeah. And I mean, this is going to get there perhaps in a bit of a roundabout way, and I am shoehorning this in, but, you know, everything's connected. Um, Perhaps it is not that we need to become conscious of power, but that power needs to become conscious of power a becoming self-conscious of power itself. Go back and look at the five orders of power. Order five, being able to create values. No longer dependent upon pre-existing and inherited values, one can transcend the existing power systems and begin bestowing value, creating new evaluations, new distinctions. But if this is outside of the power systems, from where does this power to create values come? Power looks like a geology. Plate tectonics, the values and power systems that distribute them are at the surface, but that is all that they are, a thin surface resting on a molten core. Occasionally, this core will erupt and a form of power will break through the surface, which is entirely new and different. Occasionally, ebbs and flows in this subterranean world will determine that huge chunks of the surface will break apart and flow. Occasionally, someone will dive down deep, deep into the heart of the world and tap into this source. Herein lies power with a different name entirely. Culture is powerful, but it is also many-voiced. Moreover, all culture rests as a thin, very thin skin upon the molten core of our human inheritance. Forces that were ancient when the pyramids were conceived rise up to ensure that we'll fulfill a destiny that is beyond our civilized vanity.
1: I haven't met that guy in quite some time. (laughs) I wrote that on a train in 2002. Hmm. Um, hmm. Wow. And now to connect that to Forrest's phrase. Hmm. Yeah. It's um, humility, I think, is what comes to me there. The, the humility of really recognizing the degree to which that call of let nothing come between me and love means stripping yourself down of all that which you and anyone else ever has constructed and being naked before purity, before essence and the holiness then of this notion choice. Yeah. Imagine this or think about this, the idea of free will, the notion that the question of whether or whether, whether we do or do not have free will is a, um, To me, a very profane question. Much more meaningful, I think, is to stand amazed at the fact that that which is we is nothing more or less than choice. Which, of course, then would allow us to hold the concept of sacred somewhat simply. Sacred is to enable choice to enable choice to be furthered. And then we can do the construction. Mm -hmm. Sacred is love. Love is that which enables choice. We can maybe breathe in a relationship with the, the feeling of being connected, that sense of wholeness that you referred to earlier. The feeling of being part of a continuity. And also the feeling of being each of us a moment, a very precise moment of choice.
0: We are involved.
1: That is meaningfulness.
0: Mm -hmm. Putting boundaries down and stepping off again into the unknown and disconnection becomes and is of course, a part of enabling choice. So we, in this way, Love is also letting go and sovereignty, perhaps then, I mean, not perhaps I mean, is then the capacity to reconnect and reorient once you've departed, at least to some degree, but it's this mystical capacity to connect back up again. <laughs> it's like, okay, what's that thing. And, and that is, that is also love an affirmation, mm-hmm. right? So that which enables choice, but that is not always my experience of, of love precisely. I mean, it's, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm thinking about that in the wrong way. Love isn't just the sort of abstract reflection of <laughs> enabling someone's choice. It's certainly, you know, an embodied continuity with a
1: uh, here and now. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe we can add the notion of discernment. Mm -hmm. So if you add the notion of discernment and you think about the context of, so what I mean by discernment is a faculty um, or at least a, a part of the story, a part of the notion of discernment is a faculty for being able to make, it's in relationship with being able to make good choices. So discernment helps us make good choices, effective choices in forest language. And it's, it's complex, meaning that it's nuanced and subtle and diverse. And it's listening to or perceiving the whole. So it's, it's in fact, precisely the faculty of, of, that is able to perceive the whole and to allow the whole to express itself into choice. So if you imagine as a parent, and you're in relationship with your child, and you're using discernment in making the choices, the parenting choices, to the degree to which you're able to truly, truly, really listen in deeply with that faculty of discernment, two things will become quite clear. The first is that you will constantly be finding all of your choices are orienting in the direction of supporting and enabling the choice of your child building their capacity to make choices. And second, you will then know that this is in fact love, that that is what love is. So you are acting as a conduit. You are in relationship with and acting as a conduit of and expressing. So that's another way of maybe feeling, making it more concrete, a little bit more embodied.
0: Yeah, I hate you and I'm, resonate strongly with all of that just trying to think whether to track back and clarify my sense of love as an affirmation in relationship to that or just to move on there's a sense in which i mean love as an affirmation as the like the bedrock ember from which your sort of acceptance of that pre-given will to participate becomes then a valuing of your capacity to participate and therefore make choices in relationship and connection with everyone else.
1: Well, I think I hear you saying, um, I would perhaps use, um, John's, well, probably not John's, but in my lexicon, I'm identifying with John notion of participatory knowing. Sure. Absolutely. So. When you say affirmation, you mean a participatory affirmation. Yes. Or to be connected.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the connection, the connection, I mean, and I don't know where to take this. this is going to be particularly a bit out there, but the connection then between the participatory knowing and the systemic or abstract formulations that become guidelines fixed structures security structures of behavior this then becomes very central to the challenge and maybe can move us in the direction of what you take the requirements of an emerging meta psycho technology to be
1: damn man you are definitely bringing like this is deep water this is intense well you only gave me an hour (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I could survive two hours. This is <laughs> well, I would <laughs> Okay. Okay, so let me make it very practical. Um, I was having a conversation today with a group of collaborators and we're really deeply looking at exactly this question. Obviously, it's <laughs> pretty much all I do. And um, <laughs> we were talking about the kind of culture that would be able to support coherence. And of course, this requires us to be very aware of precisely the challenge and question of the finger being taken for the moon, for the culture being taken for the thing, as, to, as opposed to the culture supporting the thing. Whew, and this is an extraordinarily non-trivial problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, For example, just very concretely, we we were conceptualizing uh, two gatherings of people and already are beginning the process of actually intentionally uh, deconstructing and re-expressing the same cultural artifacts in a different mode so as to insulate the tendency to fetishize Um, But this isn't a cure. This is just like a a palliative for that tendency. One of the the nice things that feels like it's helpful in in where we're headed is acceleration. You know, in, in the early days, let's say 3000 BC or so, you could go a couple thousand years with some fetishized cultural artifacts that were very much not the thing but the pace of change was so slow that for several thousand years they could be taken as the thing and that, that would be okay you know part of the reason why we are able to be where we are right now is that the pace of change is accelerated so quickly that by the time a thing by the time a cultural artifact is is fetishized things have moved on and it's that that metaphor of the of the the thin crust on top of the molten lava the temperature is increasing and so once you have actually achieved a velocity of change that is adequate to cause the ability of the lava to never be able to become solid and it's a a culture that is premised on itself being renewing let me see if i can do this right it's almost there there's a location in culture space that has a relationship with the way that culture enables intelligence to modify culture, such that the pace of change is high enough that it is impossible for intelligence to fetishize culture. Because if it does fetishize culture, it evaporates into obsolescence or extinction in such a rapid time frame that it is a, a non-viable path. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, perhaps it could be something like We all are, in fact, participating in an improvisational sketch. And, well, you've got to improvise and not just repeat what was improvised moments before.
1: Once you've actually dropped into an improvisational mode, uh, that's a very good way of putting it. So we are in the process of shifting from a scripted mode to an improvisational mode. And there's something about once you've shifted stably into an improvisational mode, you discover that the kind of mind that responds to improvisational mode is also a kind of mind that can keep the improvisational mode integrous rather than devolving back into a scripted mode. That's the key. It's recognizing that culture and mind are co-creative. And there's a move where there's a mind that's able to move us into an improvisational culture which then supports the kind of mind that would be an improvisational mind that then stably maintains the flow because there is something about the improvisational space that is in fact, actually stable, meta-stable. And then
0: we'll find out that we've, it's funny. like (laughs) The stanza from Shakespeare, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players They have their exits and their entrances. And in his time, each man will play many parts or something like this. It's like, the dance is like a meta realization of performance
1: <laughs> and we were performing all along. <laughs> and this is also brings us back into teleology mm-hmm. um, because it is in fact quite likely that if this metastable state is, then the arrow throw in that direction is at least as old as biological evolution.
0: Yeah. And, and then like, okay, then we're going to start talking about the relationship between the biology and the metaphysics, you know, Jung would say the archetypes, at least as old as biological lineage or something like this. We can say at least they are as far back as what has been encoded into the adaptive patterns of dissolution and reintegration and transformation over time associated with, um, with that. But then what sort of process, what sort of metaphysical process enables how do we make sense of, and then for me, just the line between psychology and metaphysics becomes blurred. And then you end up with images of mandalas and a many faced God. And what are you going to do? Just draw a circle in the ground? I think probably. Um, <laughs> so, and I and I really don't, and I'm knees on the ground, mouth open, hands back for all of that.
1: I was going to say, that's probably, that's that's much closer to what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean um, to some extent can speak from experience in terms of at least the the sense of wonder and terror, you know. So my sense of the group interactions that may be helpful to model so that effective Generative, loving communication and transformation is present and speaks to the manifold dimensions of the collective psyche as expressed to different degrees in the individuals who might be watching or participating would be something like a good story, something like a good play where you have, in fact, many characters. Oh, yes. So... And it seems like this is happening naturally and to the extent that some characters are left out of the play some people get mad
1: (laughs) our stories need to get better yeah oh yes yes and you can even say it seems to me at least that it's probably going to look like a story that looks like a story that tells the story of a story that begins to look very different Uh, My friend Jeff Gomez has talked about it as the transition from the hero's journey to the collective journey.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So imagine a story. Like, let's be very concrete. Imagine a Netflix original series. Cool. Um, So it's a story. It's got a script. It's got characters. And it has a relatively small number of characters. Certainly not eight billion. But the story tells the story of how a group of people figure out how to empower themselves, to empower other people to participate in collaborating. And in the act of watching and perceiving this story, a group of people are inspired to imagine that perhaps something like this might happen, only to discover that a group of people are in fact figuring out how to empower themselves and how to empower other people, some of whom choose to join and to begin participating. In telling their own story. And of course, because this entire story is the story of love, they are furthering choice. They are enabling still more people to become aware of and to choose to participate in the expanding wavefront of this new collaborative culture we've been talking about. That seems right to me, something like that. Certainly would make for a good story.
0: (laughs) Down the line, if we speculate that there are multiple communities in a somewhat decentralized way, participating in the co-creation of stories for them to, in fact, be enabling choice, they must remain in appropriate connection with all the other nodes doing the same where there's something, there's another story, as a meta story, like what the mechanism, something that scares me. And this is a more of a mystical thought sort of is the development of particular, like could some of those little nodes cluster towards the propagation or the support of one particular face of the God of one particular God, like there would be a God of a Greek play or something that was more associated with that particular play than another, and then fracturing, like how, how the different cogs can be, can come in together at a different level and be coherent with one another in participation appropriately around the whole connecting. There's the mechanism of choosing, realizing. What should speak for the group still remains important to the extent that we have coherence between all these different communities. So it's, you know, like this and then like this, and it's still a, it's still a whole, like, it's a wholearchy what we're speaking about. So the, me- but the mechanism of movement within levels and then moving up is still that has to be there and sourced and that's, um. I have nothing. I have nothing too sensible to say about any of this, which you might be able to tell.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I liked watching the the process in real time, though. I felt like you were actually doing some really good stuff. What was sort of stirring within me as you were as you were expressing yourself was well, it's definitely not going to be paradigmatic mind. Right, it's definitely not going to be egoic consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helps.
0: Well yeah it I, you know god funny the word god um have you encountered people in your life that the description of uh, a Christ inflation became one of the more salient things to use to describe such an individual
1: christ inflation yeah an inflation of
0: so jung speaks about an inflation of the christ archetype this fundamental unifying archetype in some sense of the self experienced as a sort of imagistically as christ it's that god complex so if we're talking about the participation in certain things from not being from a a purely egoic space and of say that's probably the right way to think about it not purely egoic because to the extent that structures i mean ego is required for there to be structure maintained the yeah there's i mm, aligning with perhaps you could talk about paradigmatic mind and then what the alternative is that might be a a way to concretize some things
1: ah okay um well, since you mentioned Forrest, I would just point you to the distinction between the omniscient and the transcendent. Um, really, I think just for you, if anybody else out there who happens to be perceiving this goes in that direction as well, huzzah. But uh, it's... That is not a simple path. So paradigm um, is simply a model, right? So the the construction of a semantic framework that has a is an extrapolation actually of an axiomatic that identifies the truth value and the good value of any given utterance is a paradigm and a paradigmatic mind is a a use of the human mind that is trained in the good use the effective use of a given paradigm so it it understands the axiomatics or at least it's able to generate utterances that are good and true in the context of the axiomatics it may not in fact understand the axiomatics at all but it's just been trained to be able to uh, to know what is uh, a good move in the in the axiomatic game and so it's um, schematically can be very effective paradigmatic mind. It has the ability to stand on the shoulders of giants without necessarily either A, honoring the giants, or B, doing anything creative on its own, uh, but therefore can be very, very um, well, again, effective. If I have a good, a, to me, a very nice, clean example of paradigmatic mind might be something like pushing the like button on a Facebook post. If you notice that that like button is a piece of code that I don't have the slightest idea what's happening underneath. Nor do I have the slightest idea of the history of what gave rise to the capacity of, say, for example, creating the JavaScript that enables that button to be actual real time as opposed to static HTML loading uh, periodically, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's, you know, an enormous pile of stuff that has been built inside the paradigmatic structure that enables this particular act on my part that I can actually understand within a relatively narrow band of understanding capacity and execute on to deliver desired results that cascade out into a larger system. So it's a very machinic kind of thing, paradigmatic mind is, and it's extremely dependent upon the machinery of a given society. So it's important to recognize the paradigmatic mind is fundamentally connected to socius, to a, uh, Uh, a social fabric that is simultaneously um, building and constructing the systemic dynamics that paradigmatic mind is operating on and is enculturating the characteristics that enable paradigmatic mind to be functional. So it's a whole complex. It's not a simple thing. Uh, I talked about the Blue Church, for example. Topologically, the Blue Church is an instantiation of paradigmatic mind. Uh, There are other possibilities, of of course, um, but it's a particular uh, instantiation. And then if we want to, so, so why, why might not it be possible for paradigmatic mind to be the thing that does what you we were talking about?
0: I get that. You get that. Okay. I get that. Why? Mm, God, where I attended and we see we're running out of running out of time. Um, just how radical is creation?
1: The most, the, the very notion of radical, um, which implies implicitly the notion of change, the notion of not being connected causally to the past, uh, creation is completely radical. It is ab Nilo creation in its essence is absolutely, um, unpredictable and has no causal connection to the past at all.
0: Is it conceivable that an instance of radical creation loses all capacity to participate with that which came before it?
1: Yes, I would say it's not just conceivable. I would say in some sense it's all around us. I would say even the the most fundamental characteristic of the world that we live in is the epiphenomenal or the the buzzing, blooming confusion of these subtle, radical moments of creation that don't quite land and don't quite percolate into a deeper embodiment in reality.
0: That are not graspable by the analytic mind, but also not able to be in relationship with the impetus for creative generation itself that we are in relationship to?
1: Yeah, something like that. That's, that is very radical. Yeah. If I just sort of notice, I notice it sort of everywhere. Uh, there's a, a pluripotency that is just beyond the horizon and it is feels a bit like, like reaching out, but not quite connecting.
0: Is there a conflict between that accepted realization and maintaining a commitment to the unique value of all human beings?
1: I'm not sure I follow.
0: Seems to me that the system of communication of participatory community we're speaking about is one which values both the sovereignty of the individual, their unique piece, their unique signal, but simultaneously their connection, their interconnection. If we are to endorse a ontology of a certain Radical creativity, radical novelty that makes possible the kind of leap in evolution that by necessity, some experience before others, some are in relationship with when others aren't. Yep. What I'm interested in and what it seems to me to be the case or what I'm kind of, (laughs) this is the part of the conversation i always feel like we should have this offline i find it deeply concerning that for one universe of care to exist in isolation from another it's this if some can be here and there is this novel gap that we lose touch with i i don't know how i don't know how to pose it It, something in my mind anyway is triggered there like there's certainly a there are some pieces i have some commitments that i care about that are that are challenged by an attempt to incorporate a notion of a certain sort of radical creativity that is not relatable to in our capacity to bear up at the very least to transformation and to realize a relationship with it. It comes back to this point about how there can be coherence between things. Like, is there, is it like a breakdown in the fundamental interconnection between
1: things? Yeah. Well, I think maybe add some more, <laughs> let me just throw some more words at the problem and see if uh, more connection happens. What I would do is I would make it, I'd make a distinction between potential and actual. Okay. And so this, because this this truly radical creativity cannot be realized, it cannot be shared, it cannot be connected with, then it remains in the potential and right. it does not render into the actual. Right.
0: Yes, I'm and with then, you on that.
1: Then at, at one of three things can happen. One is that's just the way it is. It just kind of stays that way. Yep. Another thing might be that there is a kind of an accretion up where something about the real has changed such that the connection can be made and this radical creativity is ever so slightly less radical and therefore can be brought into relation with what is and therefore to be realized and made into actual. Or the opposite is that some shift may happen in the nature of the No, no, actually just those two things. The third is just the second. And so in some sense, you might even just call it a path. Mm. Not yet is maybe a way of thinking of it rather than not.
0: If it happens for one, does it happen for all?
1: No, no. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, Every singularity, which of course you are a singularity and I'm a singularity is completely unique. Um, in this fundamental relationship with creativity. You might even say that a, a large part of the work is in our transforming that and adding to that a capacity for that to become more real by being more shared. So is, what's happening right now is exactly this process. You're perceiving through your singularity a field of potential that is entirely singular to you. I'm perceiving a field of potential that's entirely singular to me to the degree to which I'm able in myself to be able to bring that into a reality in just myself and then can find a way to express it in a fashion which can render it shareable so that you're then able to perceive that in yourself. We've actually now bridged the gap and made it more real.
0: Yes. So, yeah. Yes. I hear you. I still have a few things knocking away at me. It's like, well, If we're to dance together, then like this, if that's appropriate as a metaphor, then there is a stage or a setting or arena in which we are doing that, which itself is involved in the transmission. Yes. Therefore that seems like the the conflict a little bit with this sort of a notion of complete isolation.
1: Well, I, I didn't say complete isolation. Okay. I said singularity. Okay. So in relationship between self, yourself, and pure creativity, there is absolute uniqueness. Mm. We might call that symmetry, meaning um, not continuity. In relationship between yourself and myself, there is continuity. So there is connection that is as fundamental as there is separation. Both connection and separation are fundamental. And then there's relationship, which is even more fundamental. And that's Forrest's deepest point, actually, is exactly that, that the relationship is more fundamental. And that's the process of the real. The real is the bringing the separate into relationship with the continuous. It's a tricky business, actually. Right. This, is, this We're getting into some very esoteric metaphysics that, to be perfectly frank, would be better, better done with Forrest than with me.
0: Well, maybe I'll have that opportunity in the future. That sounds like it would be very fun.
1: (laughs) Uh, It would be very fun. It would be an interesting conversation. It would be one I would watch.
0: Yeah, right. Well, I feel like in those last few moments there, what you said, you know, there was bringing a few other pieces together that I think I can work with. And somehow there's a bit of a more of a fittedness. I'm going to leave some of the other questions then I have for another time and say thank you very much and wish you and, and your family and all your endeavors the best
1: much love Bye-bye.
0: whether you're watching on youtube or listening as a podcast remember to subscribe and hit the bell to track upcoming releases much love